my take on the word authentic was just like, no, we're going to, we're going to use the real juice. We're also going to call it what it is, a calamansi, not some other name that just is easier for, maybe easier for someone to pronounce. So that's what authentic is. It's like simplicity, if you will. And so, yeah, like take it or leave it again. Like I also want to be, I guess, like attentive to the fact that it doesn't mean that everyone is going to like it, but at least for me, if you're not going to like it, I want it to be on a level that we can all relate on. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Sandra Rocco. Sandra is the founder and CEO of Sanzo, the first Asian-inspired sparkling water made with real fruit and no sugar. Prior to finding Sanzo, Sandra spent five years as the head of growth and then chief of staff at Bonfell, a twice venture-backed personal styling service for men. He previously worked in investment making at JP Morgan and as a nuclear power engineer at Exelon. In this episode, we spoke with Sandro about why the biggest thing he learned in his 20s was how to reframe risk, how he thinks about the idea of authenticity for Sandro, and why it's detrimental for founders to be massive generalists when trying to build a successful startup. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Across the Lines. Uh, this week we have Sandra Rocco. Sandra, welcome to the podcast. Um, one way that we like to begin every single episode is by asking our guests what their favorite dish was growing up. Um, I'm excited to hear this from you, given your own background in CPG and in beverages and food. I'm curious what that was for you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Um, my response is one that's actually probably a bit non-traditional, especially if, you know, and I guess coming from like, as I'm, I'm, I'm Filipino and I guess people would have expected that I kind of name a dish like a, like adobo or karakare or something like that. But I also grew up in central New Jersey where my parents were very intent on, you know, like giving us like a quote unquote, at least now, like, like all American type of upbringing. And so honestly, what I crave when I go home is my mom's chicken parm. <laughs> it's, it's still, Whenever I see it on a menu or if I'm ever, especially now it's, it's, it's late November and it's like 35 degrees in New York when I'm looking for comfort food during like a snow blizzard or, or what have you, I'm making my own version of chicken parm and just the gigantic bowl of noodles. Um, yeah. I, in that regard, I wish I were a better Filipino. I feel like chicken parm is the ultimate comfort food is like a chicken parm on top of Alfredo or something like that just mixed together <laughs> ultimate comfort so you grew up in New Jersey you mentioned that your family wanted you to have a an all-american upbringing of sorts tell us more about what that looked like why you think it was important to them and kind of like what values and takeaways that you brought along with you on your journey from that I grew up in a town in central New Jersey which especially looking back on it now I feel quite in like quite fortunate to have. And I think in some ways it's almost informed like the Sanzo story to, to, to a degree in that it's a very diverse area. So the, the town of Sayreville is one where my, my family was one of the first wave of Asian, let alone, you know, Filipino families in the town that, is, that was predominantly 
Italian American, Irish American, Polish American. And so we just loved, or at least like the way my, the way my parents brought me up, brought my, my brothers and I up was to kind of have a bit of a taste of Filipino culture, but also obviously also kind of understand and have an appreciation for the communities that were around us. So, you know, that was just our own little hometown. But then once you stop, once you went out even, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes out to other towns, then you had a whole wave of other communities and, and their cuisines. So town, the town over had a big Portuguese fam, a, a, a big Portuguese scene. So we, we, we grew up eating a lot of Portuguese food. And then 15 minutes away is a town called Edison, which for a lot of folks probably know it as a big diaspora of Asian culture from Chinese, Korean, and especially Indian culture. How I, it, how I felt like that ended up leading me to what I'm doing right now is that we explored culture through food. I grew up as kind of like the self, like a self-proclaimed fat kid. I love to eat by age eight. I was eating off the adult menu and eating as much as I could. Um, and so just, yeah, I mean, that, I was still very early on to have an appreciation of, of various cultures through, through their food. I, I love that as a also self-proclaimed uh, fat kid. <laughs> uh, Sandra, I'm curious even to take a step back of like what the background um, of your parents were. So did they, did they immigrate um, from the Philippines to go to New Jersey? What made them choose New Jersey? What was, what was their um, kind of uh, transition like coming over? Both my parents are Filipino and they actually immigrated first to Queens for about a, a year, yeah, a year or two. Um, with my two brothers who were already born in the Philippines at the time. I was the only family member born here. Like a lot of immigrant families, you know, you go where the job is. And for my parents, it ended up being in New York. Interestingly, though, a lot of my family on, on my dad's side, especially, is in Southern California. So during a lot of summers and Christmases, you know, we actually would fly out there. Um, and then increasingly so, both without, both before this business, but then certainly, you know, as I've been scaling the Sanzo brand at this point, very much get you know, going back and forth between the two. One of the most beautiful things about the podcast that we've loved so far is that personal and professional are so inextricably intertwined. And on that point, we'd love for you to give us a bit of insight into your professional journey thus far up until you founding Sanzo recently and talk to us a bit too about how you feel like your identity and this upbringing of growing up in Jersey with this very diverse culture and with the, the background that you did might have supported your growth or maybe might have cast obstacles in that journey, right? Like what are some things that have helped you along that path and what are some things that you might have had to unlearn? Starting out with the professional career part, I mean, I'll actually go a step further back. And I went to Villanova in Pennsylvania, which was kind of my first actual real insight into being in, in, in a real environment that was like like a lot more incredibly white and a bit more wealthy. The university's gotten significantly more diverse since we left, but there's certainly a, a different air to, you know, to the school than I had really grown up with. And the greatest thing it did though, is it gave me just a ton of access and like to, to a network and various opportunities after college. So my twenties, I like to say that I was incredibly confused because my career path has been kind of all over the place. So my degree was in chemical engineering. I worked for three years as a nuclear engineer at a nuclear power plant in kind of like rural Pennsylvania, then did two years in investment banking at JP Morgan, and then did five years at a startup. And that's kind of what got my creative juices flowing. And so just feel yeah fortunate that like in my first decade just had the opportunity to see a variety of industries and I guess feeling like 
was able to borrow some, like some good things from, from each, but obviously there's a decent amount of unlearning to do from big corporate America into starting your own company. If you kind of look at it from like a first principles perspective, like all the companies that we would have gone to have already been on that one to 100 part of the business. But what they don't often teach you or what you really can't learn in school is the zero to one building. And like a, a lot of the processes that you know, go into being part of a skilled organization, they just don't work when you're trying to build something out. In many ways, what you have to, you actually have to unlearn a lot of those quote unquote best practices just because like more often than not, what you're taught in the big corporations is like you, you do things at scale. And in the beginning you know, of your entrepreneurial journey, it was actually the opposite. I kind of had to do things that did not Im immediately scale, but that gave us in like incredible feedback from our customers in terms of what they, what they wanted, what they didn't want, and then kind of build a, like a product around, around that. And so I'd say probably the, 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 the biggest thing that I learned is I think, you know, there's an old adage that says like, you know, ready, aim, fire you know, whether you're an archery thing or you're shooting a gun or something like that. But in entrepreneurship, we kind of flip it around to ready, fire, aim, meaning like the, the number, the only advantage that a startup has over a massive incumbent is speed, just because you're smaller. It's literally the only thing you can do. Everything else, you're, you're outstaffed, you're under-resourced, but you can at least move fast. And so that's probably one of the biggest I mean, I'd say this for any you know early stage founder or aspiring one is that the best thing you can do is like or the biggest thing you have to unlearn is this idea of like needing to be absolutely ready before launching a product. Sandro, on this concept of of unlearning and and kind of adjusting to like this new reality that you're living in, to loop back a little bit on the personal perspective, if there was anything that you know you you were taught. Um, as a child that you maybe had to unlearn a little bit as you've transitioned into the workforce, transitioned into more of your career. Was there anything there as well of like, you know, this is something that this is how I perceive the world. This is how I move on things. And, um, and you're like, actually, like, this is something that I needed to unlearn. Um, Cause it seems like you've learned, you've gleaned a lot from what to unlearn from like a big company going into a startup. I'm wondering if there was anything there related to just like personal upbringing or identity. Oh yeah. To me, the concept of risk is something that I feel like is, for folks who went, I think, especially at schools or had good upbringings is one that's just like, at least for me, wildly misunderstood, whether it was choosing my college major or even my job coming out of college or even the second one coming out of college, it was all around optimizing for either salary or title or benefits, but very little of it was, what am I going to learn here? Is this what I want to learn? Is this going to help me build, create is the manager in this job going to you know be looking out for my best long-term interests and, and my own growth? And even just this idea of like coming out and already needing to de-risk yourself by taking like a high-paying job. I look at what my parents did and it's kind of funny in that there's obviously a preaching of de-risking yourself when they literally traveled halfway across the world with barely a network and barely a job to raise three kids. I think when I kind of unlocked that notion, it really opened my eyes up to like a complete, to seeing the world in a completely different way. Andy Dunn, who is one of the co-founders and um, was the CEO of Bonobos, which eventually sold to Walmart, has an entire essay that for me was pretty formative to my own personal decision-making and it's called The Risk Not Taken. And he kind of talks about exactly that, where it's like, he went to Northwestern undergrad and then went to Stanford GSB. And it's like, this conversation around risk. I mean, the biggest thing that I tell folks is, especially coming out of Illinois, is, hey, you grew up in a great environment. Parents love you. You know, 
we're talking about, you know, a potential job opportunity that may require taking like a slight step backward in title or in comp, but like, where's the, where's the actual risk, right? There's really an opportunity here to, to learn something, to build something for the future. And so I think the biggest thing that I learned in my, in my early to mid twenties was just how to actually reframe risk. Yeah. It's, it's such a funny, um, paradox that a lot of Asian American parents have of they have taken literally the biggest risk that anybody can take of leaving, you know, if they're, if they're coming from the Philippines or if they're coming from like any other country or just like immigrants generally, and then coming to the United States, starting with a lot of them, really nothing, um, starting up a career, starting up a family. And then, and then I guess maybe, I don't know what it is. Like the, maybe the perception around risk is like, I, okay, I took the biggest risk, therefore you shouldn't be taking risk, but it's, but it should be the opposite. So it's, it's great to see that, um, that's something that you've also unlearned yourself. Was there a moment in time, maybe like where, where that came into be? Um, was there like a, an experience that you were like, wait, what the heck? Like, <laughs> like, well, how am I thinking like this? Or if there's anything else you wanted to mention there too, I saw you kind of wanted to speak. The only thing I was going to add about the parents thing, and I'll definitely address your question, but the thing about the, the parents part was, I have found it also interesting that your parents, something in them, whether it's genetic or not, got them to make a decision to make, you know, to, to, to take on some additional risk and, and immigrate. And I'm like, how did you think you didn't pass that on to me? Um, you know, like, and so I'm engaged now I'm going to get married next year. And like, my fiance is actually significantly more risk averse, but you know, if we have a, if I have a kid that more resembles me in risk tolerance, I feel like I'm going to identify that as my child. Right. It's like, it's like, okay, I understand where that's coming from. So that's just like, I don't know, a little addendum to what we were talking about there. But it was actually when I was working in banking, because the path is just so well-defined it's, you know, two years analyst cool promotion to two years associate. Obviously, if you're in like the investment banking division, you know, in some cases they for, like, I don't know if they do this anymore. I don't think they do this anymore, but either there or at like a you know, management consulting firm, they basically push you out for two years to get your MBA and then come back and then you become a VP. And then you just, and then it's like three to five years and then you're an MD. It's like, I can literally recite it because this is just what it was beaten down to you for the longest time. And I just, I think there was a night I was at the desk eating yeah, you know, like eating by myself, like everyone had left for the night. And it was just like, is this really the next 40 years of my life? Because it's like in, in no, in, in particular that industry, it's just so acute. Like they, it, it's, it's like a, it's almost like a method of pride that they, that they dictate. Like this, these are the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of your life. And I guess I realized then in reflecting kind of how I was in college and kind of growing up, I was like, oh, I've had at least like a little bit of an anti-authoritarian streak. I'm not some like massive revolutionary, but it's more of just like, if you tell me how things are going to go, I'm going to just inherently fight it at least a little bit, or at least question who is this person or who is this um, entity or institution telling me X. And I'm going to just want to do the opposite because I just feel like life is more interesting that way. I mean, I, I had had a little bit of like, like the startup interest, but it was that feeling in conjunction with like leaning into it a little further and going to, you know, New York city back in 2012 had like, it was a burgeoning, you know, startup scene, but it certainly wasn't anything like in the Bay area, but I went to a couple like pitch nights, just literally at a, at like a bar in the lower East side that, you know, folks had rented out and the energy was so palpable and so different from what I was experiencing in my day job. I was like, oh, this is going to sound especially dumb now because startups and especially the technology industry are just so well ingrained to everyone's 
life, but I was like, I didn't even know you could do this. Like Villanova like, it was not a, an institution that really fed people in, in, into tech, wasn't really paying attention to like the Stanford's, Harvard's and, 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 and what those grads did. I just assumed everyone went into to banking or you had to be a computer science major, but just did not realize there's just like a, a massive ecosystem of startups um, and, and like what it meant to be an entrepreneur like in, in the world of entrepreneurship and building. And those, those very dichotomous experiences, it just became obvious, like almost overnight. I want to parlay this a bit into your origin story for Sanzo, especially given our conversation around risk and decision-making processes and kind of like the mental calculus for risk. I love if you could talk about your decision-making process when it came to the risk that you'd be taking on of starting your own company from the ground up. And in addition to that, tell us too about the inspiration behind founding Sanzo. I can kind of tell you there's a solid like three to six month period of time when I was, I was chief of staff at my last company. And frankly, like or I was, we, we are like, I was doing well enough in the job and getting inbound interests from you know, other companies and the mental exercise of like, okay, what would that look like? So I was chief of staff, but then before that I was head of growth. And what I found super interesting was that the offers that, that I would have dreamt about two years prior, you know, backed by Sequoia or, you know, know, insert XYZ, like name brand fund here and specifically to be, you know, their heads of marketing or chief of staff or, or whatnot. I found myself recoiling at those the most because, and what I think I identified was that like, oh, I'm already doing this and I don't want to do this again. Not in a bad way. Like I actually, you know, love, love the roles, but it was like making lateral moves or going somewhere and doing something again felt, I mean, just not even less exciting, but just felt unattractive to me. I always just was compelled by learning something completely new. And so like, you know, diving into that a bit, I've, I was wondering to myself, like, Hey, is there any kind of operator function that would be interesting to me. And it actually got to a point where I was debating taking like a sabbatical, moving to Southeast Asia for a few months and figuring stuff out because it was such a, actually kind of such a paralyzing thought. And fortunately, the idea for Sanzo kind of came in that period of time. And once I started peeling the onion back, you know, there, like even like one or two layers, it was pretty immediately obvious to me. That I was like, oh, I'm supposed to start a company or at least like this is it. Like this is something that's completely new, completely different requires going all the way back to like first principles thinking on whether, whether like first off this brand or company could make it, but even more importantly than that, Hey, if I'm going to start this company or brand, how do I start it? And so once I started, once I was going through those mental exercises and I just found myself like, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, but like excitedly jotting down notes or thoughts or just like thinking through some things, it was clear I was already down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Tell us a bit about the founding of Sanzo in the early days. I'm sure it was just chaos incarnate, such like a big pivot from what you're used to in previous roles, especially when you first got out of college. What were some defining stories that you remember from those early days? So the idea I originally came up with in the middle of 2018, I guess the main things that I kind of point out are Crazy Rich Asians was the number one film in the world. And I just found that concept like fascinating. I don't think I'd ever seen the Asian American community ever come out so vocally in general about anything, let alone something so cultural, like, like a movie. 
but it also wasn't just Asian Americans. Right? I mean, it got to number one at the box office is now, or at least at the time was the sixth highest grossing rom-com of all time. I guess I was, I've always been into food. And so that was also at a time that, you know, David Chang was getting a whole bunch of glossy covers and New York publications, his own Netflix show. Also the time that Anthony Bourdain was really like, you know, massive, massive, massive. I mean, a lot of it because he was, at least for me, like I thought he was doing an amazing job highlighting Asian and particularly Southeast Asian cultures. So that was like a big thing that was happening was like, I was really starting to dive a little bit further into my Asian American identity that I never really had like much before. You know, we talk about what things that I, what things may have helped or harmed the, the launching of the business coming from the neighborhoods or the, the upbringing that I did. Part of it is that like, because I wasn't in a massive Asian American community in central Jersey, I was taught to be a little bit more, I guess, like assimilatory versus finding my own like group of Filipino Americans or just other Asian Americans. So I, I often like to talk about how my own identity as, as an Asian American probably only really started at the age of like 27 um, and I'm thir- and I'm what, 34 now. So it took, it took me quite a bit, but then that year also was working in, in our office at our technology company. It was just all sparkling water in our refrigerators. Like, and you, you'd even see all the Diet Cokes were being replaced by LaCroix. It was like every fancy article in the New York times or Buzzfeed or Finder 29. It was like, this is the summer of sparkling water. And what was really interesting was that our office manager, she would always order cases of sparkling water through boxed, and box.com and, and Costco, she would order like five different brands, but like all of which had the same exact like lemon, lime, and grapefruit flavors. So you would, you would often have our team either in like the breakout room or just kind of like hanging out in between meetings, comparing the different brands' lemon flavors or their lime flavors. But there's a part of me that found that one kind of ridiculous because it's like, why the heck are there, there are this many brands with the same exact flavor? Two, why are they all so different if it's supposed to be lime? And then three, why do none of these actually taste like lime? It's like, it, it all had kind of like a metallic-y taste to it as well. And so all of that kind of came together and I was like, well, hey, aren't there other flavors, other fruits to highlight here? And then particularly the big thing for me was like using real fruit so that we could like kind of authentically share these underlying flavors. Our, our version of lime flavor is our calamansi, which is from the Philippines. And my big thinking there was like, whether like if someone is not, maybe this is like shows how, like my Asian-ness, I was already banking on people not liking it. And I was like, well, if people are not going to like it, I at least want them to not like it tasting the real thing. Like my biggest worry was that they would hate a calamansi artificial flavor or a natural flavor, some kind of like weird derivative. And like at the end of the day, not have had like the real thing. I mean, we can go further, we can double click further on into that, but yeah, that was kind of the start of the, of the, of, of the brand. We'd love to double click further into that, actually, especially around this concept of authenticity. The, the concept of authenticity is interesting because it begs a question of what is authentic, quote unquote, what is real? And simultaneously, how do you stay true to yourself and stay authentic? Meanwhile, balancing the obviously like fiduciary needs of your business and trying to cater more so to the mainstream gaze as well. Sure. I've always thought it was such a, an interesting and delicate balance to strike. And we'd be really curious to hear about how you've thought about that. Yeah. And to be clear, I think when I use it, it's in a, and it's actually in a pretty narrow use case in that, like the whole conversation around ethnic foods is pretty fraught with this. And like, what is, 
especially let's say like Chinese American or Chinese food, like supposed to be, you know, is it quote unquote authentic or can, does that leave room for innovators to actually innovate or for, for second gens, especially to have our own take? Like, is that not authentic to whom we are? And so to me, it has nothing to do with that. It was more of this idea that like things are just so adulterated with chemicals and just not the real stuff. My take on the word authentic was just like, no, we're going to, we're going to use the real, we're going to use the real juice. We're also going to call it what it is, a calamansi, not some other name that just is easier for, maybe easier for someone to pronounce, you know, because we, we did get some feedback there that should we just call it, you know, Philippine lime or something like that. So that's what authentic is. It's like simplicity, if you will, like this is what it is. And so, yeah, like take it or leave it again. Like I, 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 I also want to be, I guess, like attentive to the fact that it doesn't mean that everyone is going to like it, but at least for me, if you're not going to like it, I want it to be on a level that we can all relate on. And so that was that, yeah, that, that's that for, for us. I mean, I mean, yeah, Sandra, you're saying that the the definition of authenticity is narrow, but and and it is, but the implication of it is a lot more than just that, right? Like what you're saying is like we we are the way we are. Like call us like how we're actually called. Take it or leave it. This is us, and and I think that you know that mindset obviously like impacts the business and impacts the products and impacts like how customers perceive it. Um, but it clearly impacts like also who you are and and potentially like the folks that want to join join the company. Um, and, and and that's how it's resonating for for me and for us, you know. The the last question um, as we kind of wrap up here is uh, when we like to end the podcast is by asking um, what's one piece of contrarian advice that you'd give our audience? What do you think that'd be for you? Well, you know what? I mean, it, it, it seems especially relevant right now. And I'll give a, a little thing on, I guess, like, where my headspace is. It's nothing to do with anyone in particular, but just kind of like what I feel like I'm digesting on all my Twitter feeds, which right now it seems to be that everyone and their mother is buying up NFTs or just like so heavily into the crypto space. I'm like, I have seen people literally leave completely different worlds behind just to get their, themselves into crypto. And it's actually not an indictment at all on the world of crypto. I'm actually very long it. And, and, and what I guess I'm going to say though, is that like, if I dedicated more time and bandwidth, it's something that I would love to be more interested in and, and be more involved in. But what I've seen right now is that the best use of my time is actually by going a lot deeper into what I'm currently building. And look, like that's obviously very unique to being a founder, but I, I do get a little wary when I see folks who are founders also having multiple different side projects, because I can't balance many multiple things at the same time. And I find that usually most people can't as well. And so I don't know if this is contrarian at all, but it's like, I do feel like there's a real move towards even founders being massive generalists. And maybe at a certain level, when you have enough leverage in the way of a team and, and capital and whatnot, and maybe your company mandate does require you to be a little bit broader, sure. But I, I actually find that for a lot of folks who are, in the earlier stages, if I'm advising folks or potentially going to angel invest in folks, I don't actually find that to be super constructive just because building a startup at all that's successful, the, the, the probability for success is actually quite low there. I usually don't give something that tactical or that specific, but it's just something that I feel like has been 
like I'm going to go home for Thanksgiving and this weekend I'm going to a wedding and I'm pretty confident I'm going to hear about crypto from more people than I've ever heard of before. And people that like, I had no idea that you had, you were interested in this until maybe what, two months ago with these kind of crazy selling NFTs. And so look, like, I think general interest is awesome, but it would just be a caution against some folks who are, and I'll say this, have fiduciary duties to their boards, duties to employees that, that, that they employ. Like I personally take that very seriously. And like, wouldn't want them to feel like I'm distracted from growing the company or nurturing their careers. I didn't expect to give an answer like that, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that's something we a hundred percent resonate with because what you're, what you're saying is basically if you're a founder, especially having that focus and discipline to drive forward that thing that you are exceptionally good at and carved out to do is far better than, and will return greater ROI to you over time as well than being a generalist who's like an inch deep and I'm a mile wide and a bunch of stuff that just happens to pique your interest. And I'm with you because I think that discipline and focus and honing in is really rare nowadays. So it's something I am on board with you with and really respect that you hold that in high regard too. I also think it would cure a lot of folks' anxiety in our generation. There's just such a feeling of FOMO that everyone likes to create. And one of the things I've loved, especially, I mean, obviously it, it was in the midst of a terrible, terrible pandemic, but like the ability to not have anything else to, you know, focus on. Unfortunately, you know, my family was fine and, you know, we're all good there, but like the ability to kind of tune out a lot of the bad stuff that was going on and just focus on building was like, I found like a very welcomed respite. I mean, there's a lot of other factors like social media and whatever else that we do to create anxiety on our own. But the lack of focus, I find is something that like also contributes to that because we're all looking for the next instant gratification. I think that's an awesome way to end, Sandra. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for speaking your truth and just being um, super transparent and honest and also pretty vulnerable with your background and upbringing. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.